This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. There's actually points in that video where the officers could have used a greater amount of force earlier on in the incident. See, I have the luxury of sitting here comfortably in a chair, talking into a mic. Those officers, they're still out there. Welcome to Diagnostic Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And on this episode, I am rolling solo. I've been uh, pretty disheartened over the last week or so by some of the current events swirling around us. And so my hope in this episode is that I can bring some perspective or bring a perspective of a police officer into some of these events and tragedies. Um, They being the trial of Officer Derek Chauvin, the shooting of Dante Wright, and the traffic stop in Virginia of a lieutenant in the military by the name of Caron Nazario. So as a side note, by the time you hear this, I guarantee you there will be new information out about all these incidents, um, about the trial, about the traffic stops involving these incidents. people. So I just want you to realize that by the time you hear it, there may be some information out that that I didn't even have uh, when I recorded this episode. So first up, let's just dive right into it. We're going to get into the Officer Chauvin trial. Right now, that trial is is happening. Um, by the time you hear this, uh, they may be in the midst of closing arguments or have already finished closing arguments, and the jury may already be out Um, trying to decide a verdict on this case. But just a little background uh, in case you are not familiar with uh, who Officer Chauvin is and the George Floyd incident. I can't imagine how you would not be uh, in this day and age. But just to give you some brief background on that, uh, George Floyd basically died in police, not basically, he did, he died in police custody in May of 2020. What led to that was an investigation Uh, regarding him passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Uh, The police were called during the initial contact with him while he sat in a car. There was a level of resistance. Um, He was directed from the car. The resistance continued. Uh, The resistance continued after he was detained and or arrested in handcuffs as they tried to get him into the car. The resistance included anything from you know, not following any verbal directions at the car, not wanting to show his hand um, while he was in the car. An officer actually pulled his duty weapon when he was dealing with them because he was concerned enough about that. Some resistance when he was removed from the car, just not uh, complying with officers, not putting his hands behind his back, that sort of thing. Um, But the officers were able to maintain control of him, get him into handcuffs, Uh, where he continued to resist, um, refusing to get into the car, um, into the back of the cruiser, telling officers he was claustrophobic, that he couldn't breathe. It appears and sounds like on the video at one point he tells them to put him on the ground. Um, He appears manic uh, during this event. Uh, He appears high as a kite. And and as the case went on and as this trial happened, it, it he in fact did have drugs in his system. He had methamphetamine in his system and he also had fentanyl in his system. Um, so he was under the influence of, of drugs during this event. Uh, once he's put on the ground, that's where Officer Chauvin uh, kind of comes onto the scene um, or right around that time. And uh, the video that was released um, in May when this happened, uh, definitely appears to show Officer Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck area for a lengthy period of time, um, after which he goes unconscious. George Floyd goes unconscious or appears to go unconscious on camera, and Officer Chauvin appears to continue to remain on his neck. Now, the reason I say appear is it has come out in trial that Officer Chauvin maybe wasn't on his neck the whole time that the video that was released back in May of 2020, uh, perhaps the angle of it showed that he was on his neck or made it look like he was on his neck, but there's been some body camera released during the trial that shows that maybe he wasn't on his neck the whole time 
uh, or was maybe on his shoulder area uh, for for part of the time and not um, on his on his actual neck. Either way, uh, Officer Chauvin was you know putting pressure on his upper body area for a uh, lengthy amount of time. So just to be completely upfront and honest about this case, when I first saw the video, I was pretty disgusted. I was not pretty. I was completely disgusted by it. And most videos, when I watch them, I, I hate second-guessing officers. But when I watch a use of force video involving an officer and a suspect, I usually try to look at it in light of used to being a, a use of force instructor. And what I mean by that is I try to determine and ascertain what the level of resistance was by the suspect and then the force used by the officer, was it necessary and reasonable? Um, and that necessary and reasonable standard is based on uh, officer at the scene. So I kind of put myself in the officer's shoes and I try to determine the, uh, the force the officer is using. Is it reasonable and necessary based on the level of resistance that the suspect is giving them? Now, there's lots of different use of force policies. Uh, but generally, there's you know a standard, um, obviously a a legal standard when it comes to using force, and and uh, departments policies come into play. But generally, they're they're the same. They're not exactly the same, and it it does differ from department to department and state to state. But generally, the standards are 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 similar. So the force that was used by Chauvin when I watched the video um, did not appear to be reasonable and necessary to me. Um, was there some sort of control or some sort of level of force that was needed to control Floyd while he was on the ground? Yes. Um, he was completely out of control. He was, he was flailing around. Um, the use and the placement of Chauvin's knee, though, did not appear to be correct or, or the most ideal way to um, control uh, Floyd when he was on the ground. Um, Chauvin appeared, um, again, this is me watching a video and it appeared to me that he either didn't care, um, you know, how Floyd was doing physically, or he was completely unaware or distracted, uh, by the crowd and just was not in tune with, with Floyd's condition. So there's so many considerations at a scene like this. Uh, one of them is, you know, the suspect's condition does they do they need medical help? That is actually something that the police need to be concerned about. Should you just load that suspect into a cruiser and go, even if that means he destroys the inside of the cruiser? And the way Floyd was acting as they tried to put him inside the cruiser, it's not a far reach to uh, believe or or think that he probably would have been kicking the doors, kicking the windows, that sort of thing uh, once he got in there. But sometimes you just need to you know, eat that damage and get them out of the area uh, because, you know, a crowd was gathering. Um, another consideration is what if he says he can't breathe in the back of the car? Um, then you have an officer who may be by himself has to deal with that. Do you, do you, you treat it as a real complaint or is it just someone who's trying to gain an upper hand or, or, play you or manipulate you into doing something, whether it be taking them to the hospital or opening the back of the cruiser and giving them a chance to escape. And believe me, we, we have had prisoners escape in handcuffs. It's, it has happened. Um, who have used these, these sort of things like use the, I can't breathe or I'm having a medical problem and you get them to the hospital and you open the car door and get them out. And you're probably not as purposeful in how you're guarding them and handling them and they take off running. It does happen. So that that's a consideration. Um, you need to ascertain and try to sort through, is this complaint legitimate? Do I need to take them to the hospital? Do I need to stop my car and now try to deal with this by myself and get back up here again? You know, another consideration, do you just wait for medical help to get there uh, to the scene? You know, do you deal with it at the scene or do you just load and go and possibly have to deal with it by yourself on the way to the hospital. Um, another consideration is if you keep him at the scene and he's still resistant and he's still thrashing around and he's still screaming, how do you handle that? 
because that's going to incite um, a crowd of people if, if people are around. Um, what if his actions are gathering that crowd and or that's actually the goal of the suspect? That happens all the time too. So these types of things happen every day to officers where they have to consider what their goal is in these incidents and then also deal with all these little decisions on how to reach that goal and what the best decision is. Um, and they're doing that doing that under um, stress. So when he's on the ground, and based on my understanding of the facts of the case, the police called for medical help soon after they had placed George Floyd on the, on the ground beside the cruiser. So they were recognizing that something was wrong with Floyd. They were recognizing that it appeared that he was extremely high um, and needed some medical help um, and, and was most likely on an illegal substance. They made the decision to, to keep him there and, uh, and hold him there. Um, after he had resisted getting in the car and screaming at them that he couldn't breathe and, and those sort of things, they made the decision to, to hold him there. My point isn't to try and downplay what Officer Chauvin did or justify it, but to just cause us to think about the decisions that are being made in that rapidly developing scene with upset people and an unpristine environment. Uh, it's easy for me to sit in a chair and even talk about it now. Um, in a calm way and, and, you know, dive into all the intricacies of everything that was going on. But in the moment, you have to know that it, it's not a pristine scene. It's kind of a bit of a mess. And you're trying to make decisions in a mess that could lead to a bigger mess, which they did in this case, or, you know, help the situation. Um, so, Again, these types of things happen all the time uh, to police officers. Was Officer Chauvin rightfully charged for the death of George Floyd? Yes, I, th I, I believe he was. His charges that the prosecution brought were second-degree unintentional murder. So the prosecution has to prove that Officer Chauvin caused Floyd's death while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense, that being assault in this case. So cause means that the prosecution has to present to the jury and prove to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Officer Chauvin's action were a substantial cause of his death. That has taken some hits during the trial because it's become clear that he had a amount of drugs in his system, that he possibly had a heart problem, um, so the prosecution, you know, has had to work hard and I don't know if they've met that burden of proving that officer Chauvin's actions were a substantial cause of the death. So that second degree unintentional murder charge is probably going to be the hardest, uh, charge for them to actually have the jury return a, a guilty on, uh, the second charge he's charged with as third degree murder, uh, and that. And, and I'm reading this from Minnesota law, whoever without intent to affect the death of any person causes the death of another by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing or showing a depraved mind without regard for human life is guilty of murder in the third degree. Again, you have that word cause in there. The prosecution needs to be able to present to the jury beyond a reasonable death that Officer Chauvin's actions were a substantial cause uh, to the death to to Floyd's death and that had the person in police custody not had any drugs in their system not had any heart problems um you know been otherwise healthy would have also died or could have most likely died um so that's that's what the prosecution has to prove in this case the very last charge um and probably the easiest one for the prosecution to, to prove is the second degree manslaughter and prosecutors would have to prove that Floyd's death was caused by Chauvin's negligence um, in creating an unreasonable risk and consciously um, taking chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. Again, it's just a lower standard. You still have the word caused in there, 
but it, it speaks more to negligence instead of like purposeful acts or depraved mind, that sort of thing. The jury's going to have to sift through all the facts. Um, it's impossible for myself or anyone other than the jury or, or someone who's watched the entire trial to have all the facts of this case. This has been a brief overview, but the jury is going to have to sift through those facts. And hopefully we as a country will be able to accept whatever the jury decides, even if they decide not to convict officer Chauvin of that second degree unintentional murder. Um, you know, hopefully we can accept that because our justice system has worked a jury has made a decision, um, and and hopefully it doesn't cause any more riots to happen. Personally, I will say from the beginning, my biggest problem with this with this whole incident and and what I thought was wrong from the very beginning was this push to um, say that this was a racially motivated crime. The reason I had such a problem with that is that the interaction itself did not happen based on the color of Floyd's skin. Floyd had committed a crime, which brought the police there. Uh, In fact, the store employees where the um, counterfeit $20 bill had been passed, those store employees had actually come out of the store, um, and there's video of this. They go up to the car that Floyd is sitting in the driver's seat in, and they try to get back the cigarettes that he bought with the fraudulent $20 bill. I don't know what that conversation was like, but they left the car without the cigarettes. Floyd did not give it back to him. And it was at that point that the um, store clerks called called the police. So the police came because they were called. Once police arrived on the scene, he, he, re- he was resistant to them. He showed a level of resistance to them, both verbally, both by not following direction, both by not, uh, by, by physical resistance. And when I watched the incident, the officers, in fact, could have used a higher level of force when they first removed him out of the car, um, in, in, in my opinion. Um, they kind of danced with him a little bit um, and, and appeared to be struggling to get him into cuffs, but they kept him upright and, and, and were able to get him in cuffs. But they, they actually could have used a higher level of force initially in that contact. Now, that being said, had they done that, we might not even be having this conversation. And I think that's an important point to make is that a lot of times when I watch a video involving officers using force, there's actually points in that video where the officers could have used a greater amount of force earlier on in the incident and didn't. And then it just continued to spiral out of control and get to a point where, um, it, it went really south and officers had to use deadly force or whatever it may be. So all that to say is that sometimes the police using the correct amount of force and, and more force early on would actually prevent some of these incidents from happening, uh, in my opinion. There's also nothing in the video to suggest race played an issue. There's no evidence to suggest as much. Um, that is why, you know, there's no race-related crimes being brought against Officer Chauvin. And, and believe me, in this day and age, if the state or the feds believe that they had evidence of a hate crime or that race played a role in how this incident unfolded, I think we would see those charges brought. Bottom line is, is Officer Chauvin a racist? I don't think anyone knows. Maybe he is, but there, there's been absolutely no evidence presented to that point or that his action against Floyd was racially motivated. For it to continue to be propagated as such by the, by the press and by other people is just deeply dishonest and harmful. It's, it's not helping um, us as a country. It's not helping us as just people, as human beings. And... Um, so I just think that it's, it's been dishonest from the very beginning to paint this as a racist issue. Um, until I see evidence of it, I'm not willing to do that. Um, I'm not willing to decide the motives of someone's heart before I see evidence of it. Um, and, and like I said, he could be a racist. 
he might be a racist. I don't know. And because I don't know, I think it's wrong. And because no one really knows, it's wrong to present the case in that in that light and in that way. Um, the jury in this case is obviously under extreme pressure. Uh, they need to use the facts of the case as presented to reach the verdict. Um, that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and because there is some doubt being presented regarding what substantially caused his death, who knows, who knows what this verdict's going to be. Um, but it's going to be a tough case for the jury. And I think the case got a lot tougher uh, with what just happened with the Dante Wright uh, shooting, which I'm going to get into now, which happened in Brooklyn um, Center, um, which is just, my understanding, 10 miles outside of Minneapolis. So the pressure on the jury is so great, and I hope that they don't buckle under that pressure, that they actually look at the facts of the case and decide you know, what it is, and whatever they decide is, is, is the verdict. Um, and I just hope that no outside pressure or political pressure, uh, you know, colors how they're going, how they're going to rule, um, or what verdict they're going to, they're going to find. So the Dante Wright case and the pressure that's putting on, let's, let's dive into that. Let's look at that. This case has me pretty fired up. I'm not going to lie. Uh, this is probably why I should have Lauren, uh, with me and not be rolling solo. As I said at the beginning, I should probably have Lauren here with me to keep me calm. Um, this case, it, it's an absolute tragedy. Um, and like I said, this happened in Brooklyn Center, uh, Minnesota. And uh, what led to it was a traffic stop. Yeah, from all intent and purposes, it appears it was a registration violation. Uh, they pull this traffic stop. It looks like on the video, from what I saw, three officers were there. One of them being female officer, Officer Kim Potter. And uh, during the traffic stop, they find out that he has, that Mr. Wright has a failure to appear warrant. I, from the best I, my understanding, it's a failure to appear warrant. And basically, there's an outstanding charge on Wright for a foot pursuit involving a gun and a gun charge. And um, Mr. Wright has a, a criminal history uh, to include, like, he, he's, I, my understanding was he was waiting trial for on a robbery, and then he had this gun gun charge uh, that he failed to appear on. There's been some chatter that the the um, the notice of the hearing or the notice of a court date he was supposed to make was sent to the wrong address. Let me just say this. If you commit a crime, there might be a clerical error, but the responsibility for you to take care of that crime and make sure that you do what you need to do still, in my opinion, falls on you. If I was charged with a crime, I would bend over backwards to make sure I knew where I was supposed to be and when I was supposed to be there uh, in order to try to make that right. If there was a clerical error and he never got notice of the hearing uh, or the court date that he had and then this warrant happened and he didn't know he had a warrant, is that possible? Yes, clerical errors happen. I've seen them happen. Um, it's possible. But the way he acted during this interaction with the police, even if there was a clerical error, even if he didn't know he had a warrant, his actions were wrong. They were wrong. The way he interacted with the police was was not right. Um, so anyways, he has this warrant. They move up to the car to arrest him. Uh, um, a male officer pulls right out of the car or directs him out of the car. I should say he didn't physically pull him out of the car. He directs him out of the car. Wright gets out of the car. They start cuffing him. And at one point during that handcuffing, you can tell something is going wrong because you hear the male officer say, don't do that. Don't do that. And then he kind of moves in a way to, it appears to try to block Wright from getting, going back into the car. Um, Wright, makes a dive for it. He, he 
pulls his hands free. He dives back into the car. And I just, what I'd like to portray here, what I'd like to get across is that this becomes a very, very dangerous situation because if you have someone diving back into a car, the entire car is unknown because these officers haven't searched the car yet. They have no idea what's in the car. Wright has been around guns. He's, you know, the outstanding charge involves a gun. At least that's how it appears right now with all the information I have. So extremely dangerous. Like, why is he going back into the car? Is it to retrieve a weapon? Is it to flee? Is it to use the car as a weapon? Uh, I personally have been working when an officer has been purposely run over by a car. These are very dangerous like situations uh, where there's a lot of stress on the officers. So Officer Potter, the female officer there, uh, she begins to yell that she's going to tase him. Um, you, It appears that this department has, has cross-draw tasers, which most departments do. And what that means is the taser is is on the weak side of the officer. The officer carries their handgun on their strong side, the taser on their weak side, so that they have to cross-draw um, to try to prevent mistakes like this from happening. At one point in the video, you see Officer Potter. It appears she has some paperwork or something in her right hand, and she appears to move it to her left hand, as and she's yelling taser, and all of a sudden she has a gun in her right hand. Um, she then yells taser, 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 as as the male officer is still trying to remove right from the car. Um, she yells taser, 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 and um, that also is just a normal thing that you're taught in training. You yell taser, 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 and that is to let the officers around you know and around the suspect know that you're going to be deploying your taser. It's a it's a warning to the to the suspect, but more importantly, it's it's a warning to the officers around you that hey, I'm going to be uh, using my taser, so go get your hands off this guy so that you don't. Um, so I don't accidentally deploy the taser into you or you don't feel the effects of the taser uh, with you having your hands on. So she yells that uh, soon after she fires one shot. Uh, she says, oh, expletive, I shot him. Um, and then she either reholsters her gun or drops her gun. Uh, based on watching the video, I'm not sure what, but it, it does look almost like she drops her gun and doesn't reholster it. I don't know for sure. And then Mr. Wright flees um, in the car. Uh, after he's shot, he wrecks into an occupied car, um, and he subsequently uh, dies. Uh, the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is is who's investigating this um, incident, this death. And uh, they were not in favor of this video being released when the, when the chief of Brooklyn Center um, police department or whatever police department this was that patrols Brooklyn uh, Center. He was um, the BCA, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, was not in favor of um, him releasing that video, uh, but he but he did almost immediately after this happened. There was false information um, and completely and wholly misguided comments being made on social media and by press people. I'm just going to give a small sampling of that. One was Vice TV tweeted, Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man, was shot and killed during a routine traffic stop. I have a problem with that because this was not a routine traffic stop. Maybe it was routine at the beginning. First of all, let me back up. There is no such thing as a routine traffic stop. Routine traffic stop in law enforcement is a bad word. It's a bad way to describe a traffic stop. If you are treating your traffic stops as routine, if you as a police officer are treating traffic stops lackadaisically uh, or as routine, you are fixing for a really bad day at some point. Uh, They're not routine. You need to be on constant guard because you are pulling someone over who is unknown to you, usually unknown to you. Um, You're pulling someone over who has unknown things in the car. You're pulling someone over who has been involved in unknown things. 
You may just think it's a summary traffic violation. You may just think it's a stop sign. You may just think it's a registration, but that person, you know nothing about that person when you pull that vehicle stop or what they're capable of or what weapons they have. So first of all, a traffic stop should not be considered routine. Second of all, this wasn't a routine traffic stop. If you want to use that word, it may be started out as routine as I'm going to stop this car for a registration violation and maybe I'll give a ticket and maybe I won't. But as soon as it was found that Mr. Wright has a warrant, it became no longer very routine. And then when he resisted arrest, it blew routine right out of the water. Second tweet that I read. Again, this is a very minute sampling of some of the garbage that's out there. Dan McLaughlin, a senior writer for National Review, tweets out, if you, can, if you can't tell the difference between your gun and your taser, you have no business being a cop. Really? That's the best you could come up with? Of course she knows the difference between her gun and her taser. Of course she knows. Every officer knows the difference between their gun and taser. This is an absolute nightmare thing to happen to an officer. And it's not the first time it's happened. It does happen. It has happened. Even in our own community, um, Leicester Stands Up, a, a organization in our own community, one that took, took part in, in the protest that we had uh, last year over the summer, um, they wrote, this is a tw- this, they had a picture of Dante uh, on, their, on their Twitter feed with, uh, sitting with his um, child. And they wrote, this is 20-year-old Dante Wright and his son. Yesterday, Dante was shot and killed by police because he had an air freshener hung on his rearview mirror. He was unarmed. A routine traffic stop should not end in a young black man losing his life. This must stop. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. The air freshener thing came from the fact that allegedly, according to Dante's mom, he called her and told her he was being pulled over because he had an air freshener blocking his view, hanging from his rearview mirror. Whether or not the officers talked to them about that, I don't know. Was Dante shot because he had an air freshener hanging from his mirror? No, he was not. That's not why he was shot. And I want to be clear that this is an absolute tragedy. As a Christian, I believe that every person is made in the image of God. I believe that Dante's life mattered. I don't believe that just because he resisted arrest, he should have been shot. But his actions drove this incident. The police did not. He did. He made decisions. And unfortunately, he paid for it with his life. Because in the midst of those decisions, a really terrible mistake was made. During the press conference with Chief Tim Gannon, um, the mayor and the city manager, city manager's name is Kurt uh, Bogani. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, and and uh, city manager Kurt Bogani is in charge of the city employees. He ensures they get due process as required by law, that sort of thing. So it was a press conference with the chief, with the mayor of the of Brooklyn uh, Center, and with the city manager. A press person um, asked the city manager, can you instruct the chief to release the officer's name? The city manager said, I won't do that. It would be inappropriate. Whoever this press person was, what was inappropriate was killing Dante Wright. You're working harder to protect a killer cop than a victim of police murder. Are you kidding me? Is that your job as a press person to make a statement? Or is your job as a press person to ask questions to try to arrive at facts about the case and about the incident? 
to report them to the people. Not to mention a victim of police murder. There's a difference between someone being killed and someone being murdered. Thou shalt not murder would be one of the Ten Commandments. As police officers, we take an oath and we put a gun on our hip and we're given the authority to use deadly force against people. In this case, it happened to be a tragic accident. But again, it was a tragic accident pushed by Mr. Wright. During the same press conference, police chief Tim Gannon was emotional. Had I been the chief, I probably would have been emotional too because you understand the mistake that was made and that you have people in your town and in Minneapolis and around you and not around you that are going to come and use this incident as an excuse to do absolutely horrendous things to your community. I would probably be emotional too because I just had an officer, a 26-year veteran who appears was a good officer, good enough to have her training. I don't know anything about her. Maybe she was a train wreck. I don't know. But you had an officer whose career and pretty much her life has been changed forever. And maybe rightfully so. A natural consequence of a terrible mistake. But this chief stands up and he's emotional and he's, he's doing this press conference and a reporter in the room actually said to him, I hope you're not crying. The chief says, yeah, I'm emotional. I hope you're not crying. Really? That's what we want out of our press in these press conferences to berate a chief who's emotional about a terrible tragedy, something that happened that involved his officer and someone in the community. And we want a person of the press to berate the chief. Is this what we want? Man, it pisses me off. I'm not going to lie. It makes me upset. Another reporter at the presser, you've talked about the officer having due process, although Dante Wright did not get due process in this situation. She needs to be fired immediately. Due process is something that is afforded to the employees of most cities. It protects people from being fired wrongfully. But it doesn't matter to the press. Not in this press conference. What matters is their agenda. Not reporting the facts. One reporter asked why... Why would the police be pulling someone over for a summary traffic violation during a pandemic? Are you kidding me? Give me a break. So during a pandemic, the police aren't supposed to enforce summary traffic laws? Or should it just not be any summary law? Or maybe we should jump up to misdemeanors and not enforce those during a pandemic. This is classic good police work. I can't tell you how many times I enforced a summary traffic violation and ended up with an arrest for a quantity of drugs or a gun or a warrant. The logic behind that is is beyond me. So who is Officer Potter? She's a 26-year veteran, like I said. Um, The press has been... I've seen some reports bringing up a past officer-involved shooting uh, that she was on the scene at right after it happened uh, and she told officers to stay separated and turn their body cams off like that like that is supposed to suggest she was trying to do a cover-up or something like that I, I I don't know what the point of putting that in the news is that's like common protocol police turn their body cams off after they're done at an incident they don't keep their body cams on for hours after they're done at an incident. It doesn't matter what the incident is. When it's done and it's over with, there becomes a time where the body cameras are turned off. And it's also common protocol to separate officers who have been involved in a deadly force situation. In fact, 
that's what should happen because then no one can come back and say, oh, the officers were together and then they, you know, got their story together because that's exactly what our press would do in this day and age. They say the officers like conspired and got their stories correct before giving a statement. They were allowed to spend time together. Ultimately, she's been charged with second degree uh, manslaughter. Um, and if you recall, I believe that's exactly what Officer Chauvin, uh, one of Officer Chauvin's charges is. I'm conflicted on this. I'll be completely honest. On one hand, I believe she should be held accountable for this mistake, especially since someone lost their life. Other people, regular citizens, have been charged with manslaughter for terrible mistakes made. My only issue with that is oftentimes those mistakes are made while they're doing something actually illegal or doing something they should not have been doing or acting recklessly. In this case, Officer Potter was in the midst of doing her sworn duty. She did not willfully put herself in that position or she wasn't being willfully reckless or willfully negligent or anything like that. She was in the midst of doing her job. And so I'm conflicted. I'll be honest. I'm conflicted about whether or not she should be charged. Maybe I shouldn't be. But regardless, she's charged. It's how our justice system works. The Bureau of Criminal Apprehension in Minnesota believes that the prosecutors there believe that they have enough to charge her with second degree uh, manslaughter. And so, and so we wait and we see what happens uh, in, in that case. Um, it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. But some perspective needs to be brought to it compared to what is being put out there uh, to the general public. Lastly, I want to discuss the Karen uh, Nazario traffic stop. This happened in Windsor, Virginia. And this actually happened quite a, quite a while ago. It was just recently, the video for it just recently um, was released to the public. So second lieutenant, Karen Nazario, uh, he's in the military. Uh, he was in, it looked like military fatigues at the time of the stop. Um, an officer attempted to pull him over uh, for no registration being display, displayed. Now it turns out this this possibly was a mistake. I don't know the, the laws there in Virginia, but he did have a temporary registration taped to the inside of his back window, uh, which was heavily tinted and, and could not be seen um, at, at the time uh, when the stop was made. Um, again, I don't know if that's legal in Virginia or not, but regardless, the officer that pulled him over did not see a plate displayed. There was no license plate on the car and, and pulled him over for that for that. Um, the press, you know, obviously because it's so important is reporting that this gentleman was black and Latino. Um, and, and you know, that that's again, the whole race thing is being pushed in this. So, um, Mr. Nazario, he doesn't stop immediately. It sounds like from what I know, he drives a mile and a half with an officer behind him with his lights on and a siren on to pull into a uh, gas station where it's light and uh, provides a safer environment for him and the officers. At least that's that's uh, what what he's saying. The officer as such, because Mr. Nazario didn't pull over, treated it as a slow speed pursuit, called it out as such on the radio, and then handled it as a felony traffic stop. Again, not outlandish. Not outlandish to handle the stop in that way. Upon being stopped, Nazario sets up his camera in his car. And my question for that is why? If he was concerned with how the stop was going to play out and go, why would he then not comply with anything the police told him to do? If you're so concerned for your safety... So concerned for your safety that you drive a mile and a half into the parking lot of a gas station where it's light. So concerned that you set up a camera to record it. Why would you then co 
completely refuse to follow any directions from the officers? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Was he trying to bait the officers to get what he wanted? To maybe be able to bring a lawsuit like he's bringing now to get a lot of money? I don't know. I'm not saying that's why he did it. But it's a question that needs to be asked. Why would you set up a camera? You drove to a parking lot because you were so afraid. You set up a camera because you were so afraid. And then because you're so afraid, instead of doing everything you're told to do exactly as you're told to do it, you decide to do nothing the police tell you to do. Because that's going to help the situation. As an officer, how do you handle this? Well, if you're going to treat it as a high-risk stop, then there's no rush. Nazario made it clear that he wasn't going to get out of the car. He told them, I'm not getting out of the car. I'm not going to get out. They told him to get out. I'm not getting out. What's going on? What's going on? I'm not getting out. What's going on? Not following any verbal directions. So at this point, you have a resistant subject. You have no idea why he just drove a mile and a half with you behind him with your lights and sirens on. You have no idea what's in the car. You have no idea if he's telling you he's not going to get out to try to draw you up to the car and hurt you. These are things that are going through the officer's minds. There's a lot of tactics and a lot of things that could have maybe been done by the officers differently. I actually don't want to get into them because, again, I think there's times where I don't want to discuss certain things because I don't want it to be used against the police. I don't want the wrong people to know. But there's definitely different things the officers could have done. They took the bait. They went up to the car. The one officer, Officer Gutierrez, I believe his name is, um, you know, got up to the car, makes ridiculous comments, tells, tells Mr. Nazario he's fixing to ride the lightning. Just dumb. He's talking about his taser. The press is saying that he's talking about him getting in the electric chair. He's not talking about Mr. Nazario getting in the electric chair. He's talking about his taser. He has his taser in his hand. That's what he's talking about. And some may say, well, he, stopped, he was stopped for a violation that turned out possibly to not be a violation. He had the temp tag in his window. It was a good faith stop. You're now dealing with a resistant subject. You're dealing with someone who didn't stop for you and now is refusing to get out of the car. Once you're in that stop and you realize, oh man, there's a temp tag in the window and I just didn't miss it, you you can't go back and change that. But you also can't just be like, well, just get back in your cars and drive away. It was a good faith stop. The courts usually recognize that if you make a good faith stop, even if it was a mistake, that you can follow through with that stop. I've made those stops. I've ran a plate wrong. And it comes back to a, you know, suspended or on a registered to a different car. Or I've seen the registration sticker when Pennsylvania used to have registration stickers. I've read the registration sticker wrong, thinking it was expired, pulling the car over. And once I pulled it over, realizing that It's not expired. It was my mistake. What do I do in those situations? Quick make contact with the driver. Run them real quick. Check their license. Make sure they don't have a warrant. Send them on their way. It happens. If someone feels that they've been pulled off over wrongfully and it was due to a mistake and then they end up getting charged for something else and they want to fight it in court and the judge decides to rule against it or a jury decides to rule against it, so be it. But it doesn't give you a license to just do whatever you want to do when you get pulled over. Unless the police are asking you to do something that is illegal, immoral. As a believer, if if the police are asking me to do something that violates the word of God, then maybe we can have a conversation but not in this case. Officer Gutierrez pepper sprays Mr. Nazario. Just dumb. You shouldn't be pepper spraying someone in a car. They do decide to flee. They can't see. And then you guessed it. The police are responsible for that. 
If I would pepper spray someone in a car and then they would take off and flee and wreck and hurt somebody else or hurt themselves, I'm responsible because I used the wrong force. He couldn't see. It was your fault. He couldn't see when he drove away. This is the type of decisions the officers have to make. These are the types of things the officers have to think through. Most are calling this a racist act. This is being painted as completely racist. What's interesting is there's another video of this incident. Um, It's body cam video of the younger officer who initially tried to stop the car. This video, I didn't see it played anywhere on any news agency. I didn't see it shared on social media, but I found it. And I'm going to include a link to it in the comments of this this, uh, episode. And on this video, the young officer does an absolutely excellent job explaining to Mr. Nazario why he did what he did, why the officers did what they did, and reacted the way they did. What we find out is that Mr. Nazario had a gun on his leg, a legally owned gun, but a gun. We find out that Nazario actually admits understanding their perspective and why they would react the way they reacted. And yet here we are. These cops are racist. One of them's been fired. And Mr. Nazario is going to make a lot of money. Maybe Officer Gutierrez should be fired. I don't know anything about him. I don't know his jacket. Watching the video, he looks a little bit like a train wreck. But again, I I don't know him. And I don't know what he's been involved in. Definitely some training issues with him. And I don't know how long he's been on the job. Maybe he should know better. Definitely said some ridiculous things. Definitely did things that probably weren't policy. So maybe he should have been fired. I can't speak to that. I'm glad they didn't fire the younger officer. I hope they don't fire the younger officer. Because listening to that guy talk to Mr. Nazario after the case, that guy has the gift of explaining things and speaking to people. And I hope the pressure doesn't get so high on that department that they end up uh, cutting him loose. Um, he seems like a, a, a good officer. There is a, a common thread in all these cases. It's resisting the police. That's the common thread. Not racism. Resisting the police. Our culture has become obsessed with blaming the police in these situations. Please hear me. I am not saying at all that George Floyd or Dante Wright deserve to die or that Lieutenant Nazario's car stop could not have been handled differently or better. Not saying that at all. I'm not saying that Officer Chauvin should not be held accountable, that Officer Potter shouldn't face consequences for her tragic mistake. But did the actions of these suspects and or drivers help or hurt their chances of force being used? Did their actions increase or decrease the likelihood of being injured or killed? The police should absolutely be held to a high standard. And they should be held accountable for wrongdoing. Anyone in a level of authority needs to take on the scrutiny that comes with that authority. But that scrutiny should not be conducted in a vacuum apart from the actions of those the police engage with. Instead of trashing the decisions officers made and the force used, have you ever thought about how you would handle the same situation? If your answer is no, because I'm not trained as an officer, you're correct. And that understanding that you are not trained as an officer should propel you to maybe take a step back and say, you know what, that didn't look good or that was pretty violent, but I don't have the same training and I've never been in a situation like that. I've never felt that amount of stress. I've never stopped a car and not known what's inside of it or who the person is or what they're capable of. I've never pulled a guy out of a car for a warrant and feel intense and then try to resist and get back in the car. 
I've never felt that stress of not knowing what's next and having to sift through a use of force continuum in my, in my head as I decide in milliseconds what level of resistance I'm being presented with and then figuring out what level of force I can be used to defeat it. The op- because the officer in these cases, they can't run. They can't just give up. They can't just leave. They have to deal with it. That's what we pay them to do, to deal with it. So how would you deal with it? Think through all these cases. Think through the way George Floyd acted. If you need to watch a video and you can handle watching the video, watch the video. How would you handle him when he resisted and was acting obviously crazed on drugs? How would you deal with it? For Dante Wright, how would you deal with him resisting and trying to dive back into a car? What would you do? For Nazario, What would you do if you tried to stop a car and they didn't stop? They kept driving. Not a long distance, mile and a half. Slow speed. What would you do? What would you do when you ordered him out of the car and he says, no, I'm not getting out. I'm not doing it. I'm not getting out of the car. And please hear me. I'm not, if you're listening to this, most likely you you like the police. (laughs) Most likely if you're listening to these episodes, you like the police. You're in favor of the police. You're in favor of what we do. I understand that. But if you're listening to this and you're not in favor of the police, or if you're at times find yourself being very critical of the police, just ask yourself some of these questions. How should the police deal with it? Do we want the officers to just leave? Do we want them to just let people go if our culture deems the crime to be low level? Do we want them to ignore minor traffic violations? Do we want them to ignore property crimes? We're asking them to do this right now. This is exactly what we're asking our officers to do right now. Ignore this stuff. Do we want them to answer all the questions of someone who doesn't stop for them? before they do any act, before they act, before officers act in any way, do we want them to, to have a conversation and explain to the person all, all, all their questions that they have, answer all the questions that that person has before they use force? Maybe we want them to assume the best in all people while we pick a number of dead cops we're okay having every year just so we can feel better about use of force. Maybe we just need them to understand that hurting people hurt other people, so they should stand down. Maybe we should strip them down of all their power and authority and make an absolute mockery of them and their profession. Maybe we should call them racist every chance we get. Or maybe, maybe, as a society and a culture, we should start putting pressure on those who wish to do whatever they want without consequence. Who prey on people and rob them and hurt them and rape them and kill them. And this isn't a black and white thing. Crime is committed across the board and within all races. But what if we called a spade a spade and regardless of color, we called for consequences against all those that break the law? We're destroying the very people who protect us. That's what we're doing right now in this country. Officers are literally wilting inside. And yet we continue to beat the drum that they are wrong and racist and evil while justifying and giving a pass to those who resist them and commit crime and wreak havoc. I can tell you from personal experience and officers I know who are deeply affected by what is going on in this country right now when it comes to how criminals are being treated and how they are being treated. As a sergeant, I've had officers tell me their soul has been taken from them. How do I deal with that? 
as a supervisor, as a law enforcement uh, supervisor who has people under him who've been called to do a job and they tell you their soul has been taken from them. Let me tell you, that was a difficult conversation to have. See, I have the luxury of sitting here comfortably in a chair talking into a mic. But those officers, they're still out there. I owe it to them to do this. This doesn't mean we deny the dignity of people or forget that they are made in the image of God. It doesn't mean that when a cop crosses the line from law enforcer to lawbreaker, we don't charge him with his crimes. This doesn't mean we don't ask for strong leadership in our police departments. But it does mean that if a cop does something we don't like or don't understand, we don't immediately decide he's wrong or doesn't get any due process or a fair trial and generally should just be destroyed by the mob. It doesn't mean we criminally charge cops after they wade into impossible messes and do their jobs just because it's politically expedient or in hopes of appeasing the mob. It doesn't mean that when a good leader goes to bat for one of his officers that made a mistake, we berate him and drive him out. Will you be a mediator for the police? Will you choose not to jump on the latest social media post ripe with wrong information or outright lies? Will you do your homework and your research and dig into the incident for all the details? Will you search out an officer and ask them their thoughts on the situation and if they have ever been in a similar situation? I guarantee you they'll tell you they will be or they had been. Will you take a moment to think critically about what you would have done faced with the same incident? When you hear or read people going off the rails against the police, would you gently ask them some of the questions I posed? I have utmost respect for every single person that's always re- that's ever reached out to me and asked me a question about an incident. I have no problem sitting down and saying, this is why the police did what they did. No, I know, you know, it's violent, it's whatever, but this is this is why it went down that way. I have a ton of respect for people that I've reached out to and said, hey, I heard what you said. I saw what you posted. Can I just talk to you about it? And the person says, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk. A ton of respect for people like that. No problem with that. Lastly, would you pray? If you're a follower of Christ, would you pray that those dead set on being lawbreakers would meet the great mediator? Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. And in the same way, would you pray that those in law enforcement who are still enemies of God and who don't know him would also bend their knee and confess their sins to him who saves? I really appreciate you for listening to me. It's, uh, it's humbling. It's very humbling because this is easy. This is easy for me to sit here and talk. What's not easy is what we're asking our police officers to do every day and night. That's not easy. So hopefully you got something out of this episode (laughs) and still want to listen next week. I have a huge episode next week, one I'm very excited about. Uh, This is a interview I'm doing a uh, brother in Christ who who was a lawbreaker many years ago, lived a life of crime before getting saved, uh, and he's going to be on the podcast. And um, I'm also hoping and planning to have some 
oh, I don't want to call it a big announcement. I don't want to oversell it. A uh, an announcement about the podcast, some exciting information about uh, something I'm planning, something I'm doing. Um, so some things need to fall into place before then. Um, but I but I am hoping next week. Um, next week will be episode ten, and so it's kind of a kind of a big episode for me. A ten, it's a decent number. So I just want to um, hopefully share share that announcement uh, next week during that episode. Make sure you're following the Diagnosa Cops Calling Facebook page, and you can check me out on Twitter at mtonyw. Once again, completely humbled that you have listened to this episode. And if you are one of the roughly 800,000 in the U.S. that wear a police uniform, you know the drill. Kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker. Do it every day and do it the right way.